Open your Bibles, if you would, with me to the Gospel according to John, chapter 1. We've been looking at the prologue to this Gospel, the, uh, the, actually the introductory comments that John makes in verses 1 through 12. Last week, we, uh, and as I mentioned before, when I put down a, a series of passages here, that's the goal. That's not necessarily how far we're going to get because we're open to uh, how the Holy Spirit directs the service and, and we'll go as far as we can. Well, this morning we have a couple of passages I want to look at. We're going to look at uh, verses 12 through 18 in chapter 1, uh, picking up where we left off last week. And then, uh, Lord willing, if we have the time, we'll go forward from there into John chapter 8 to take a look at something that really illustrates what John talks about here. So with that, in verse 10, we saw last week that uh, it says that Jesus came to the world and the world didn't know him. They didn't understand. They didn't get it. And then it also he, it says here in verse 11 that he came to his own and they didn't receive him. So as such, we see that there's two sides to that. There are the people in the world, the Gentiles you could look at, or the people that didn't know God. They didn't know the oracles of God back in the first century when Jesus walked the earth. And then he came to his own. He came to the Jews, and the Jews didn't receive him. We looked at that briefly last week. And what we saw there was that they actually rejected Messiah. We see over and over again in the New Testament where it's not about nationality anymore. It's not about being a part of a group. It's about simply coming to faith, believing. We talked about that word in the Gospel of John. It occurs more than 70 times in this Gospel because it's truly simple faith that he looks for. And it's, it's not just an idle faith. Well, I have faith in faith. I, have, I hear people say that from time to time that don't know God. And they essentially are putting faith in their ability to have faith, not faith in a risen Lord, not faith in Jesus, the Messiah who came to hang on that cross to take your sin and mine upon himself that we could be freed from the penalty of it. So uh, we see here in verse 12, he says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Now, whenever you see the word but, both in the Bible and outside as well, you've got to realize it tends to cancel what's just been said. He's talked about, well, he came into the world and the world didn't get it and he came to his own and they didn't receive him. But, you see, he's canceling that. He's saying, but... There's something better that Jesus is doing. It'd be like if I told my wife, well, honey, I really love you, but I'm going to get a look. <laughs> yeah, if that's all I get, that's, that's good. But so you see, when we use that, so when he uses that here, he uses that purposely. Because it's not about, again, it's not about Jew or Gentile. It's about, as the Bible says, a new creation. Paul goes into this in great detail in Ephesians chapter 2 and 3. Uh, it, it, when he talks about the dividing wall, the barrier wall has been broken down. And so when he talks about giving this the right to become children of God, that again, that was a new concept for these people. They were used to a covenant relationship based on law. And it was do it, if you summed up the covenant, the old covenant, it's do it and live, okay? The new covenant is it's done, therefore love. 
whole different way that God is using to relate to his people and for us to relate to one another in the new covenant. And Jesus, we saw last week that he goes back, he bypasses everything. He goes all the way back to Genesis 1 when he says, in the beginning. And then forward from there, he shows us that Jesus is over all of it. He is the star. This is a brand new work that God did, and it wasn't based on law. It was going to be based on grace, and we'll see that as we go along this morning. So he says to simply believe. That word believe, pistuo, is the Greek word for that. And what it means is a faith that produces, produces action. Because if I simply believe, the Bible tells us the demons believe, and they shudder. And salvation is not available to them. They are absolutely depraved. So what is it then? It's a, it's a belief that leads to salvation, this belief that leads to a life. It's not just at salvation. And again, we see that we have grace for salvation, but we also have the grace to live. And that is based on the faith that we simply supply. Jesus said it, has to, it doesn't have to be much. It can be as big as a mustard seed. It can be just a little but to simply believe. And it's the kind of faith that says, all right, if I told you that, you know, there's a crack down this building and it's about to cave in, what are you going to do if you believe that? You're gonna, I'm going to be talking to an empty room. <laughs> because that's what it does. It produces action. So as I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the one who went to that cross for me, it produces action. It's, it produces a change inside of me. And now my life, the desire, the overwhelming desire of my heart is to have my life count for him. So he says that he gave us the right to be children of God uh, to, as we believe in his name. Verse 13, who were born not of blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. And he talks about simply being born again, born from above. We'll look at that more in John chapter 3 when we look at Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night and asking him and Jesus telling Nicodemus that you need to be born from above or you can in no way see the kingdom of heaven. But simply what he's saying is that you need to be born more than once. It's not born of the blood. It's not physical birth. He's talking about a spiritual thing here. And the spiritual birth, every, you know, the Bible presents two births and two deaths. OK, uh, very simply, you're born physically. And if you are not born spiritually, then you get what the Bible calls the second death. OK, and I mean, this is serious stuff. We're talking about eternity. It hangs in the balance for each one. And, and, and do I believe that? Do I really believe that? That having been born now from above, I know that I will not have what the Bible talks about, what John writes about in the book of Revelation, in the apocalypse, that I won't have the second death. I won't see the great white throne of judgment. I'll see the bema seat where I'm rewarded for the things I've done in the body and the things that I've done that weren't so good will be burned up as wood, hay, and stubble, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians. But it's appointed unto man once to die in Hebrews, and then comes judgment. So it's either the beam of judgment or it's the great white throne. It's either I'm born twice and I die once unless the Lord comes back and I'm one of those that's caught up with him together in the air, Paul tells us in Thessalonians, or I die twice 
And that second death is not something anybody wants to experience. And it's not, you know, people say, well, God wouldn't, my God, I, you know, <laughs> makes me crazy. When people say, well, my God, usually what happens when I, when I see that, again, is, is there's a supposition that I actually have thoughts that are more well, better developed than God himself. And what I'm doing when I say, well, my God, and I therefore usually what follows that is some form of heresy, is I'm putting God in subjection to my ability to reason. How foolish is that? He's the one that makes the rules, gang. He's the one who is holy, completely pure, absolutely pure as, as relates to infinity. And I'm not. He is the one who is sovereign. He's overall. He says, you know what? You can't figure me out. Stop trying. Just go with what I've revealed of myself to you. And know that my love is poured out. A love that is so infinite that we can't comprehend, fully comprehend that love. We'll take it. So... Here in the Gospel of John, what we've seen so far, we, we, he talked, we talked about last week where he says, in him was life and that life er, was the light of men. So we see the life of God. We talked about that, remember? The life of God being manifest in Jesus and then the light of God. And I'll submit to you, brothers and sisters, if you know the Lord this morning, then you have the light of God inside. This is not a physical light. It's a spiritual light. I see it in you. I pray you see that light in me. That's why Jesus said, if you, you don't take a light and hide it, hide it under a bucket, he, well, he says bushel, I say bucket, same thing. You don't take a light and stick it under a bucket. You let it shine. Because if you've done business with God, if you are belonging to him, if you are one of his children, as John says here, then that light is going to shine. You perhaps don't even have to say a word. Because it's his light that comes forth from within us. It's a beautiful thing. So we see the light of God coming from the life of God, which now is inside of us. Why do you think Jesus said it's expedient that I go? Because if I don't go, the helper won't come. And if the helper doesn't come, you're not going to have this available to you. He was bound to one place, one physical locality, until the Holy Spirit came. Because now the Holy Spirit can indwell me and indwell you. And he knits our hearts together and causes us to be a family. Here he says, children of God. And as children, we see that we're adopted, that we are heirs. Paul goes into great detail on that in Romans. It's a wonderful, not just a spiritual doctrine, you guys. These are living realities. So in verse 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. This is a powerful passage, and I'm going to try to move quickly here because I'm going to cover some ground. But the word became flesh. The word, this is probably the greatest miracle, the greatest move of God in all time. That God himself would actually choose to take on a body, that the creator would take on his own creation and come into this world and, and go through the things that he went through in order to ensure your salvation and mine, that we wouldn't die. And he says, uh, John says, and we beheld his glory. I was sitting in my office yesterday afternoon uh, preparing for this. And I literally, brothers and sisters, I ended up on my knees. 
because I began to realize, and it's something that the Lord was showing me for the first time. I've been through this gospel a number of times over the years. Here's the Apostle John. He's an old man in this, when he wrote this. As we mentioned, probably 90, 95 AD, somewhere in there. And have you ever had a significant loss in your life? And, pardon me, Oregon runny nose, I'm getting used to that too. Anyway, (laughs) um, have you ever looked back and just dwelt upon, thought about someone that you knew that had gone on? I have. And I began to think about, here's John as he's writing this under the, under the, the authority of the Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit inspiring him to write the things that he does. But he went through this. And here as an old man, he's looking back and perhaps as he's, as he's getting these put down, looking back and saying, you know, I remember we beheld his glory. I saw it. I was part of it. I was among the most privileged of men. And, and, and just the weight of that began to sink into me as I was looking at this yesterday again. And, and I began to realize, you know, this guy was there. And, and again, part of God's design is to take us there, to draw us in. Folks, if you don't see your life hidden in the pages of this book, you need to take another look. Because it's not something that we approach that's far off, that's away and outside of us. Our lives are hidden right here in the pages of Scripture. You see all of these things. If you look at the prophetic record, you see all of the things that have come to pass, even in our lifetimes, those of us that are a little older, uh, that with the reestablishment of Israel in 1948, when the, the clutch prophetically had been pushed in for centuries and centuries and God began to ease that clutch out and to re-engage prophecy. Actually, it was a few decades before that. We'll go to the British mandate and all that stuff. But, but truly, we have seen the re-engaging of the prophetic time clock in our age. And we see all of these things that have been fulfilled and we see all these things that are yet to be fulfilled. And where are we? Right in the middle of it. So I encourage you, incorporate into your worldview, not worldly view, but your worldview, the reality that we live in biblical times. Biblical times isn't back there. Biblical times are here. And a student of God's word will look at the world around him or her much differently than the rest because we orient ourselves based on this. And it's glorious. And as John wrote these things, he was looking back and seeing and remembering. There he was with his head on Jesus's breast, in, in the bosom of Jesus's breast. And we'll uh, see that here. Uh, that here he was years later. The Lord had been gone physically for a long time. But John was also there when Pentecost came and the Holy Spirit was poured out. And he saw the world turned upside down by this rabbi from Galilee that there was something very, very unique and significant about. It says, We beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. He says, The word became flesh and dwelt or tented among us. 
That's a very significant word because what John is saying, if you look back at the presence of God among men, when was the last time that had happened? It was under the old covenant. And it was when God said, Moses, I want you to build me a tent. It was called the tabernacle. And it's the same word here that Jesus came and he tabernacled among men. What the purpose, the primary purpose, and we could go for weeks on the parallels and the symbology, the typology of the, the tabernacle itself. But primarily what the purpose of the tabernacle was, was that the glory of God would come down and rest over the mercy seat of that ark in the Holy of Holies. And only one man once a year could go in and have access to that. And if he had anything wrong with him, he was dead because of the holiness of God. And so it was a dwelling place for the presence of God. And now Jesus here being portrayed by John as being beyond all of that stuff from the old covenant. He says the word became flesh. And he took on a body and he tabernacled among us. The presence of God. We saw in the beginning that Jesus was God and he was with God. That he's face to face with God and he is God. We talked about that last week. And so now what John reveals is, he, and he went on and he said, no, he's better than John the Baptist. And, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a few. But, but truly, here is the word of God, Jesus, taking on a body and being God, dwelling with men. Well, Pastor John, I didn't think that was possible because it says that God won't inhabit the same space as sinful flesh. That's the old covenant. That's law. That's everything pointed to Jesus in that because God's will was never to be separate from man. It was always to have fellowship with man. I've asked people many times a trick question. Yeah, I'm kind of crummy that way. But the trick question, what were we created for? And often people say, well, to serve God. And my response is absolutely not. We were created for fellowship with God. We were created so that we could have a relationship with him, this intimacy that was broken in the garden with Adam and Eve. And we talked about last week how when we looked at redemptive history, that you have this first couple of chapters opening in the Bible and virtually the rest of it from there to Revelation 19, when God recreates, it's all redemptive history. And it's all God's work to bring man back into union with himself, into communion with himself. And so... We were created for fellowship with him. And Jesus came. His primary mission was to restore that which had been broken for so long. Because the law could never do it. All it could do is show us how broken it was. So he says, we beheld his glory and full of grace and truth. Now, how would, how would God's glory be manifest? through Jesus being full of grace and truth. What God elected to do in sending his son was to reveal his glory. Remember we talked about, if you want to get to know God, you need to see Jesus. Because Jesus says here that he reveals him. And so here is God saying, no, I am holy. Sinful flesh will not dwell with me. And yet, because he loves us so much, would take on a body, would take on flesh, 
in the person of Jesus and that he would dwell with sinful men. The Pharisees, the religious guys of Jesus' day, it drove them nuts because Jesus was dining with sinners and harlots. All of those people, they're not like us. I'm not going to even ask how many times that kind of thought has been through my mind or yours. But truly, the, he, he did that. But see, it says he came with grace, unmerited favor. You don't deserve it, but I love you. And I'm going to dwell with you. I'm gonna, we're going to have breakfast. We're going to have dinner. We're going we're gonna to have this relationship. Unmerited favor, grace. But truth, because God in sending his son, the father in sending his son, didn't sacrifice truth in order to bring grace. And he's glorified in that because of the way that he set it up. It says in verse 15, John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This is him who, of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now, John was older than Jesus. They were cousins. We see that with Mary and Elizabeth and all that, six months. And yet, I don't think John is talking about that. I think John is talking about the pre-incarnate Christ because he understood that Jesus was way, way above him, as Matt shared this morning. Um, I smiled as Matt shared that, and I thought, yeah, that's one of the things I want to talk about. <laughs> he didn't know that, but it's true. We beheld his glory, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And, and John the Baptist understood that. He got that. Verse 16, and of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. We have received, as I mentioned earlier, we received grace for salvation. Salvation is by grace through faith, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2. Because we were dead. Not sort of dead. Not sick. Dead. Walking dead. Spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. But, but see it says there in Ephesians 2, it says, but God. Canceled that out. Being rich in grace saved us. So he says that he's given us the grace to live, but it's grace upon grace. Grace for grace is what it says here. And he's talking about an expanding sphere of grace. Uh, Paul says again in, in the book of Romans, he says, where sin abounds, grace superabounds. You cannot outsin the grace of God. And if you... you Brothers and sisters, we have to have a good grip on grace. What grace is? I can't get more grace than I've already gotten. The moment of my salvation, the moment of my redemption, God added enough grace that would just overflow to my account for all of my life. That's why it's kind of silly for us to think, well, I'm going to earn some kissy points with God by doing this or that. I'm going to earn some brownie points. So he's going to really like it when I do this. And he may be pleased in this or that. Don't get me wrong. But when it comes to the grace of God being poured out in our hearts, we have been given an overabundant supply that is inexhaustible. And as we understand that, then our lives become really, our obedience becomes a response. It's simply a response to his grace. Yeah, you know, as I struggled with that term obedience for years as a Christian, and it would make me kind of loopy inside. I was like, oh, you know, because when somebody see obedience, I think about a dog or an animal. You go to a dog show, and the dog does all the stuff, and they get pops a little treat in its mouth. 
And it's like, he was obedient. And it's like, no, that's not the kind of obedience that, that we're talking about. Does God look for our obedience? Absolutely. But our obedience is a response. It's the response of my heart to his love, to his grace, to the fact that he did virtually all of the work. And all he says is you have to do is simply believe with that kind of a belief that produces action. James says, show me your faith and I'll show you my works. That's why. It's that, that type of a deal. It's not empty faith. It's substance. I believe this stuff. And as I believe this stuff, my life is transformed. My life is conformed to the image of his son as I simply go along. Understandably, often, as we go through trials, as we go through things in this life, things that hurt, things that push us, things that stretch us, things, things that take us way out of our comfort zone, God often uses those to be glorified in our circumstances because when my life gets pushed, I have a choice. Am I going to whine and snivel and carry on and get all upset and be tweaked and torqued out of shape? Or am I going to simply say, Lord, you've got this. And I want you to be glorified in my life. I want you to be seen. I want my response to your grace to be noted, not for me, because God does not share his glory with another. We were not created with the capacity to contain glory. It spoils us. It ruins it. It's terrible. That's why it is so, so important that when people see things in our lives that we simply point the way to him, that we simply hold up a mirror and we reflect that glory upward immediately, it's not for us to contain it. We cannot. We don't have that right. He's a jealous God and he won't share it. And when we try to take it, we're asking to be taken to the woodshed with dad. Hebrews 12, read it. Point is, um, of his fullness we've all received in grace for grace. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So we see here, again, this contrast that John is, is it's like he's, he's making some things very, very clear coming out of the gate here as he writes these things down. Coming to the end here, he says the law was given through Moses. The dwelling place of God with man back in the law was very, very limited. Nobody but one person once a year, as I mentioned. But grace and truth, this new covenant in his blood that he ushered in the night before he went to the cross and he ratified with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, this new covenant that throws the doors open for full-blown communion fellowship, relationship, restoration, access to God is available to you and to me because grace and truth are realized through Jesus and by that, God is glorified. Marvelous truths. This will be part one of grace and truth. We're going to go into some things in chapter eight next week because I want to leave room um, for Pastor Mark uh, but think about these things, guys, as you go through your week. He says in verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. 
the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Once again, you want to get to know God. You want to know him more intimately. You want to understand the person of God. Yes, is he an all-consuming fire? Absolutely. But we're reminded in Hebrews 12 that we haven't come to Mount Sinai. And the people begged that, that, that Moses would talk to God and then talk to them. They couldn't handle it. You know, if even a beast touches the fire, it says that it's going to die. That there was smoke and all of this stuff. I mean, the holiness of God is so clearly seen there. And God doesn't compromise that as Jesus comes into the world and takes on a body. How? Grace and truth. He doesn't sacrifice truth to bring us grace. We'll talk about that in more depth. But Jesus has simply declared the Father to us. Glorious truths. 